All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, and as we stand in your presence, we are mindful that we stand in power and victory as well, Lord. And Lord, sometimes we forget, and sometimes we feel beat down and discouraged and troubled, but yet, Lord, you tell us that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. I pray tonight, Lord, that we would experience and apprehend that which you have apprehended us for, Lord, to be those conquerors, to overcome by your strength that is made perfect in our weakness, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us, Lord, to live the life that you've called us to live, Lord, to be lights in this world, to be salt, to shine the light of Christ, that our works would be done before men, that they would see them and glorify you, Father. So we pray for a fresh move of your Spirit, a fresh baptism of your Holy Spirit upon our lives, Lord. We open ourselves up to that. We welcome that, Lord. We pray, Lord, that the fruit of the Spirit would be manifest in and through our lives. Lord, strengthen us in our inner person that we would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that we would know the peace of God, and we would know the unspeakable joy that is provided in your name. And so, Lord, may our hearts be open and receptive, sensitive and receptive to all that you want to say to us tonight through your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Can you say hello to someone, please? All right. Come on in, everybody. Come on in and grab a seat. And while you're grabbing your seat, grab your Bible. A seat and a Bible. That's all I asked you to grab. A seat and a Bible. All right. So please turn to the book of Galatians this evening, chapter 5. And we are jumping in both feet here, looking at the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was so concerned and disturbed that those in the area of Galatia would be taken captive by a false doctrine. And that false doctrine is any doctrine that adds something to grace, any work that we would add to be right with God. It makes the work of Christ, we are told, actually in vain. His work is in vain whenever we add something into what He has done for our salvation. And that's why the gospel is so amazing. That's why the gospel is so energizing, so um, worth dying for, worth living for, worth sharing, worth spreading. It's because it's the greatest news that could ever come across our ears and enter into our hearts. It's the news of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. 
It takes the focus off ourselves, which is very important for us to do uh, so often. And maybe tonight, for some of you here tonight, uh, you're really struggling. And it could be because your eyes are on yourself and are not on the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're constantly tempted, like those in the area of Galatia, to, to think that there's something more or strive to do something else. And yet Jesus Christ said, it is finished. We are to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is good news. That is glorious news. That's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul has been working that out, explaining that trying to sway those in the churches around Galatia back to the glorious gospel so that they would understand how free that they are. That freedom that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why he is so steadfast in talking about this liberty Because adding some sort of work into the gospel, it actually puts us back under bondage, back under the law. It makes us slaves to to doing things and earning things and meriting things. And and so he's as he's encouraging them to enjoy the liberty that they have in Christ, the freedom that they have in Christ, that, that now they don't have to do anything to be more righteous or to gain salvation. But how are then they to use that liberty? How are they to use the freedom? And he tells us to serve one another. So that the greatest and most appropriate use of of the gospel practically working in and through our life is to serve one another. The blessing of serving one another. And you see what's happening? Our eyes are off ourselves. And when our eyes are on ourselves, that's where we get in trouble. And so Satan is always trying to steal our liberty, steal our joy, bring us back into captivity. And so that's why if you look at verse 13 of chapter 5, that's why Paul says, For you, brethren, you've been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity For the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So in other words, he's saying this liberty liberty you have, use it to serve one another There could be a tendency to be prideful and start getting at each other when we measure ourselves and compete with ourselves which, or with others, which is what the law does. When we live by our works, as uh, Paul said in Ephesians uh, 2.8, then we we will boast and we will compete and we will uh, measure ourselves against other people and how much they're doing compared to how much we are doing. And so he says, says, don't do that. Instead, just serve one another. And so now he begins to speak about the, the practical aspects of walking 
in that liberty and walking in that grace. In verse 16, he says, then, I, uh, uh, he says, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That word lust is just the desire of the flesh or the pull of the flesh. And here in that one verse, verse 16 of chapter 5, we have so much in regards to everything we need to know about living practically for God. He says that we're not to fight and use willpower to try not to sin. But we're to simply walk in the Spirit. And there's some some debate about whether that's the Holy Spirit or that's our spirit inside of us. I believe it's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And see, what's going on and what you and I are constantly facing is the fact that we have two different natures working at any given time. And as we walk in the, the nature that God has given us in the newness of our life, in our born-again life, as we walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit that's living inside of us, then what we're doing is we're just following God. There's a, a power there. There's an enjoyment there. There's a delight there. And when we're doing that, there's, there's, there's no restrictions. There's no laws. It's just basically we're just enjoying God. As we're enjoying God, we're not sinning. We're not walking in the flesh. So the, the key to overcoming our flesh, the key to addiction rehab, is to be born again and simply walk in the Spirit. And one might, might say, well, that seems too easy. And that's because we strive for some sort of formula. That can also be part of the flesh. We want a program or a, a formula or rules and some things we can follow. But, but God says, you're free. And as you follow this, this Holy Spirit that's in you, the Holy Spirit desires to lead you as you follow that you won't be in the flesh. You'll be in the Spirit. In verse 17, he says, for the, the flesh, it lusts, you notice that word, against the Spirit. So what does that mean? There's a fight. The flesh is against the Spirit, and the Spirit is against the flesh. He says, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish, meaning as new believers in Christ, or as believers in Christ, with a new nature, we naturally, by that nature, want to do right by God. That's part of the new nature that He's put in us, that we have a desire to walk with God, to 
to please God. But yet, we don't always do that. We don't always do what we want to do, and sometimes we blow it, and we give in to that desire or nature of that old, old person we were, the flesh. Satan loves that, because what happens is, is when he entices us to operate in the flesh and not in the spirit, then what he does is make us feel guilty. He tries to heap condemnation on us. And God wants us to be free from that. And so he's telling us that there's a fight, there's a battle between those two natures. And part of being successful in walking in the Spirit is just to recognize that. Just to, to recognize that, man, my flesh, it, it wants to take over. But the Bible says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So I have a greater power. I have a, a greater motive, a, a greater God that is working in me to, to lead me. And so Paul is pointing that out. In verse 18 he says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And, and so what that tells us is, the Spirit is, is desiring to lead us. And our job is to follow. Our job is to recognize. And a big part of us recognizing the leading of the Holy Spirit is to know our Bibles. Because the Holy Spirit wrote our Bible. So the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. The Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is leading us, but this suggests that we have some part in that. That if he's leading, then we, we have to follow him. And there's a lot of things that Christians will say about their actions and behaviors and even justify those things but we have to ask ourselves, is the Holy Spirit leading you to do that? Because clearly in the Bible it says that that's a sin not to do that. So then we start to, to realize that we have to be careful of, of not mixing up our feelings and emotions for the leading of the Holy Spirit. One of the best ways to do that is to look at your Bible and see if the things that you're thinking and doing are in accordance to the Holy Spirit revealing to us what the truth is in God's Word. So one may ask, well, what are those works of the flesh? In, in verse 19, he tells us exactly what it looks like when we're in the flesh. When we're allowing our sinful nature to take over and, and actually lead us instead of the Holy Spirit leading us. This is not an exhaustive list, as we'll see at the end, but the, the point is we can begin to, to look at these things and, and say, well, what I'm doing seems more like the list of 
the flesh working than it does the list of the Spirit working. And so he says in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, which is just simply having sexual intercourse with someone that's not your wife when you're married. So that's not that's a work of the flesh. That's not you you can't find a justification for that in the Bible, nor should you want to, but people do. Much of our entertainment industry is defined by this section of fleshly works. Isn't that interesting? So many people work very hard and they take that hard-earned money and they whip it out and they slide that hard-earned money and pay to watch a work of the flesh to be entertained. So part of that is adultery. That's a work of the flesh. And then he says fornication. So what's different? the difference between fornication and adultery? That word fornication in the Greek is pornea, where you can kind of figure out what that means. But it's basically sexual intercourse with someone that's not your wife. So it's a broad term. So it can include adultery, but it's a more broad term. So someone may ask you, well, where in the Bible does it say you can't have sex unless you're married? Well, that's fornication saying that. That's the exact definition of, of fornication. You know, what's interesting is what we read here are, are perversions of things that God made. Things that God made good, Satan counterfeits them and perverts them and tries to destroy people with them. And so we see adultery, we see fornication. What, what else does he say? He says uncleanness. So what does that mean? It, it, it would do you well. We don't have time tonight to, to go through this in detail. I'll give you a little detail, but it's very insightful to do a word study on these words. But unclean, uncleanness is also involves some sort of sexual act that is seen or perceived by the general public as disgusting. Normal, decent people would, would look at this and say, that's disgusting. That's what the Bible would call unclean. Now, here's what's interesting. There are many people, they may even say they're a Christian, they may be your friends and family members, and they want you to think certain sexual acts are not disgusting, and if you do think they're disgusting, which you should, then you're a hateful bigot. So there's a, a striving to normalize these sexual behaviors that God condemns and then to make you feel bad for thinking that 
say homosexuality is you don't think it's beautiful. You think it's disgusting. Well, you should think it's disgusting because it's not something that God made beautiful. It's a perversion of what God made, and it is disgusting. It's sinful. But you may feel that way about, say, homosexuality, but maybe you don't feel the same about this premarital sex. Well, you should feel the same about it because that's wrong too. And it's wrong to the same degree. But you see how, how society kind of just can segment or compartmentalize certain things and, and make us feel like, well, that's not as bad as others. And the point is, these are all perversions of the way God made things. They're distortions of the way God made things. And they're sinful. It's interesting that the first few that he mentions are, are things in the sexually immoral nature. Uh, that Back to that word fornication, the Apostle Paul has seven lists in his writings, like this one, of things that are evil. And in five of those lists, fornication is in five of those seven lists, and in every one of them, it's the first one. So that makes sense why that's such a big thing in society. It's one of Satan's really, really effective tools in harming and hurting people, and this is what God wants to free us from. So uncleanness, it, it, it means that it's, it's repulsive and disgusting to just decent people. See, so you think about what goes on in these pride parades or these, these uh, transgender performances, even for little kids. It's that sort of thing. But then he goes on, and he says lewdness. So lewdness sort of takes the things that we talked about, and then it it sort of adds a a component of things that are more done in the open or publicly or for people to see. And the people doing it and participating in it don't have any shame where normally that sh- they should feel some sort of shameful kind of feeling about that. But when you take these sexually immoral practices and continue in them unrestrained, the book of Romans tells us that God will give you over to those things and you will end up doing things that you should feel some sort of shame or oddness or weirdness, but you don't feel that anymore. All of that is is gone. And that's what he's referring to when he talks about lewdness. But then in verse 20, he kind of, it seems like he changes the category a little bit. He talks about religious things. So, part of a working of our flesh, it has this sexually immoral component described in verse 19, but then it has this religious component. He says idolatry, which 
is worshiping the creation over the creator. It's putting something in the place of God in regards to priority in our life. It could be a hobby, a job, family, anything that and you know we we would put in the place where God should be, and that becomes what drives us and what motivates us. That's a that's idolatry. And then he says sorcery, which that Greek word is pharmakia, which is where we get our word pharmacy. That's where we get our word drugs. And the reason that's in there is because that word sorcery has a, an element of sort, sort of a hallucinogenic supernatural working. So sorcery is, is things that we see in the occult, dark magic. Um, often drug use, of course, is involved in that. And it's a, it's a religious way to thumb our nose at God. It's a replacement for God like idolatry is, but then it's also, then it's an embracing of the things that are opposite of God. And there's, there's often involved in, in this uh, charms and spells and drug use and drug abuse to try to, uh, someone attempting to, to take themselves to some sort of higher level of consciousness and all those things, but that's sorcery. And then he says, and it seems like maybe he moves categories here a little bit, he says hatred. And that now he's talking about our relationships with one another. Hatred is pretty, pretty simple, simple to understand. It's, it's just hostility towards another person or a group of people, but I, I like uh, what one of the definitions uh, spelled out. Hatred puts barriers up between people. Isn't, isn't that the opposite of what God does when he brings us together in fellowship in Christ? So hatred puts barriers up. And we see that all in our society, all types of barriers. You can make up, make up all kinds of things. To just say, you're, you're this and I'm this. And I'm not that and you're not this. Just And, and all these things to, to divide. That's, that's what um, critical race theory does. That's what critical theory in general does, if you're familiar with that. Um, that's what social justice does. That's a lot of the ideologies and philosophies that's circul- circulating around in our culture. It's all to put barriers and divide people in classes and groups or, or what have you. So then he says, contentions. And contentions are things where, where we just sort of get at each other in the, the way of argumentative or debating and just, just constantly, and it kind of goes with Hatred, if we're going to sort of segment ourselves off from others and put barriers up. And then we have verbiage behind that to explain why we're doing that. A work of the flesh, our flesh is very contentious. It's very 
argumentative. It's, it's, it's very um, opposed to and demonstrative of the opposition that one has with one another. It exerts itself in a way that it, it is explaining and demonstrating the hatred. So that's something that we often see in our society, and, and it's big on social media, and it's big in politics. This was actually, this contentions was actually uh, a characteristic of the church in Corinth, which the Bible tells us was carnal. Contentions, they're just fighting with each other all the time. Everything was a problem, getting at each other, debating, and they're separated from other. You're not like me. I'm not like you. Well, get out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with you, that type of thing. And then he says, jealousies. That, that word uh, jealousy has within it heat or zeal, passion. So it, it speaks of a, a passionate sort of fervor to match or surpass a person in, in achievement or accomplishment. We all know generally what what jealousy is. But it's a work of the flesh that, again, pits one person against another because one person wants what the other person has or wants to be what the other person is. And then he says, outbursts of wrath, which I think that's pretty self-explanatory. It's when we just yell and we can't contain ourselves. And then he says selfish ambition. So in our culture, uh, this is very applauded and awarded and thought highly of. And ambition is not bad. But when the ambition is selfish ambition, it's the opposite of the ambition that Christ had. It's a desire to fulfill Whatever it is that we want, whether it's material or whether it's fame or glory or popularity or whatever, that we'll go after it at the expense of everybody else and to the point where it only really benefits us. Jesus, opposite of that, he said we're to use our life to serve one another to lower ourselves, to humble ourselves. So selfish ambition is just trampling over anybody that gets in our way of what we want. And then he says dissensions, which is a, a word that speaks of sort of like contentions, but it's a little different. It's when we stand apart in a way where there's no togetherness. All the togetherness and fellowship is gone. Dissensions is, is where the, the contentions where we're at each other, then now we're, we're taking action and causing problems. So we're stirring things up and stirring other people up. The book of Romans actually tells us to mark those who cause these dissensions or divisions. So they, 
they become divisive and they cause problems within the church. And then he says heresies, which a, a heresy is a, a false teaching that causes dissension. That's exactly what was going on in the church here. And then he says envy. So isn't that the same of jealousy? Well, it's a little different where envy is actually unchecked jealousy to the point where it actually drives someone to do something about their jealousy. This is exactly what was the motivation for the religious leaders in Jesus' day to kill Jesus. So their jealousy was unchecked and turned into envy, and they just wanted to get rid of, rid of him. So then he says drunkenness. Self-explanatory. Then he says revelries. So revelries is like um, partying. Somebody who has a, a party lifestyle. So they enjoy going to the clubs late at night and their life is sort of characterized by that sort of thing. That's what it means, revelries. So then he says, murders. I think I skipped that one. That's murders, drunkenness, revelries, and then he says, and the like. So in other words, it's not an exhaustive list. There's a lot of other stuff, but you get the point is what he's saying. You get the point. So where does all that stuff come from? That's what comes from our flesh. And then now he contrasts this. Verse 22 says, but, so this is where we want to be. When the Spirit's leading us, so this is how we know the Spirit's leading us. The fruit, and it's interesting, he says the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit is different. Why does he describe how the Spirit works and the characteristics of the Spirit working in our life this way by fruit? It's because fruit doesn't work to be fruit. Fruit just stays connected to the vine. As the fruit stays connected to the vine, then there's the production of the things that the vine brings to the fruit. So fruit is not something that we manufacture, but it's something that God does in us, and this goes back to being led by the Spirit. So if we're led by the Spirit, if we're following the Spirit and not our flesh, if we're surrendering our will to what God is doing in us and through us, through His Holy Spirit, then this is what it will look like. So we can ask ourselves, is, is our church a church that's in the Spirit or is it in the flesh? Is our life individually, is it one characterized by spiritual fruit or does it seem like it's more of a fleshly deal? 
So he says the fruit of the Spirit is love. The word fruit is singular. So many believe, and, and I kind of believe this, I think this is right, that there's just one fruit of the Spirit. It's love. But then the rest of the fruit is different aspects of love. And that word love is agape, which is God's unselfish, unilateral, unearned or unmerited love working through our life. This is what he wants to do. This is why he says, walk in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. He's saying, this is what I want for you. I want this life for you. I want heaven to be working in your heart and out of your heart. And it's characterized by love. So the rest of the fruit, I, I kind of look at it as like a, a cluster of grapes. And it's, it's all these different grapes, but it's all grapes. It's like love is like this. So all this fruit is just the love of God working in different ways in our life and in our heart. So the fruit of the Spirit, it's love. And then he says, it's joy. And then he says, peace, long-suffering, or patience, or the ability not to react when something confronts us or comes our way. Kindness means that there's a certain sweetness to our character and our interactions with one another. And then he says goodness, which that, that word has a animation to it to where we're actively doing good in a practical way that we're focused on doing good to others that it's not a passive thing where we wait but it's we're actively doing good actively seeking how we can do good how we can encourage how we can bless how we can help doing that that the work of the Spirit is we're always working to, to help and to do good and to benefit and bless and build up. It's just a, this amazing. I love that word because it just says that you know, like when we come in into a service, that's one of the, the amazing things about corporate worship, which the Bible commands us to do, is, is the opportunity to stir one another up to love and good works to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to walk through life with one another, to do whatever is needed for one another. That's what that means. And I was kind of emphasizing that because it's just so easy. To, oh, yeah, of course, do good, you know. But it's, I, I like that it's not passive, but it takes initiative to go and do good. And then it's faithfulness. So what does that mean? That means dependable and reliable. You talk to anybody in church ministry and they are praying for someone like this. Dependable, reliable, people you can count on. You talk to any business owner or any boss. or That's something I've been hearing lately from different business establishments. 
is the, the difficulties of fi- finding a faithful worker. I keep hearing that over and over. I see a lot of you nodding. It's like, where's the faithful people? But you know, the, the Bible says when, when God comes, then will he find those who are faithful, those who have faith? So this is a characteristic of the Holy Spirit. And then he says gentleness. That word's interesting too because it just means that one is so confident and trusting in the Lord that they don't have to exert force or pressure or manipulation. That they're resting in the Lord. That word is also used in Philippians 4 where it says rejoice in the Lord. You guys know that one? Again I say rejoice. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, you guys know that one? By prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And then it says, this is the part we forget, I forget easily, and let your gentleness be known to all. And that means just when you pray, you know it's already settled, so you're relaxed. You're gentle, you're not forceful, you're not pushy. I made my request, it's all set, I have passed my anxiety onto the Lord and now I can rejoice and the peace of God is now guarding my heart and my mind. And then he says self-control. So again, that goes back to how do we not do what we don't want to do? It's by walking in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, then we have self-control. And then he says, against these things, there's no law. In other words, we're free. When we're following the Spirit, there doesn't have to be any rules, regulations, any um, programs or steps or anything like that because we're following the Holy Spirit. If you always obey the traffic laws, you don't need the law. But there is, because that's almost impossible to do. But that's the point. So in verse 24, he says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Chapter 6. Continuing the practical teaching of being led by the Spirit. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in, in any trespass, that word, Overtaken is a slip, slips up. Somebody slips up. This is not someone in habitual lifestyle sin. This is a believer who slipped up. If anyone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So the main context of that is legalism, but of course there's a broader meaning to that, that anybody who's 
slipped up in the things of the Lord that we as a body of Christ have an obligation to help restore that person. There's a way that we do that that's very important. We're very gentle in regards to one who has slipped up. We do it in that spirit of gentleness. And as we're doing it, we're considering the fact that we too are sinners and can very easily slip up as well. So we're not approaching it like in a legalistic way where someone who's legalistic would really bring the hammer down on somebody and really clobber them and really do it from the standpoint of how could you do that? I would never do that, that type of thing. Kind of like Peter when he said, all those people, they, they might betray you, but I'm not going to do that. That sort of attitude. So he says, go, go into this. But, you know, this also suggests that this is something that we should be doing. It doesn't suggest, it commands us to do That's a better word for it. It doesn't suggest it. But he's saying that, you know, we're to, we're to be careful, and he's going to talk about this a little more. Because we're grace people, because we're faith people, because we're fruit of the Spirit people, because of that, we, we don't have a lifestyle of going around and inspecting people's lives. It's so important that we have grace upon one another. I need your grace. You need my grace. We need each other's grace. Because none of us are going to live up to the standard. And we all know it. Probably. We feel it. And that's why we keep going to the Lord. But hey, we don't, we don't need other people to start clobbering us with what we are already struggling with. We need other people to come alongside us and say, hey, I know it's hard. I struggle. I have, and, and let's do this together. That's what he's saying. Let's, let's get through this. And the, the point is that we want to restore somebody, someone. That we want, our heart's desires, we want to see someone do well in the Lord, walking in the fruit of the Spirit and experiencing those things. And that's our heart's desire. And so that, that's just something we should pray about, not looking for those opportunities, but asking the Lord if He wants us to be a helper for someone, that He would bring that person or that situation to our table so that we can be a helper. Usually it helps to have a relationship with the person. So that's a very important thing. Just an observation though, I've noticed. Not everybody wants you to help them be restored. Some people will actually be very mad at you. The Bible says, Rebuke a fool and he'll hate you. Be careful with this. It's true. It happens. Rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. So this is maybe not necessarily talking about rebuking, but you're getting into an, a sensitive area where 
If someone's not surrendered to the Lord, their claws may come out. And they may look like a little kitten, but they'll, they'll claw you. Because Satan is such a sensitive area, and this Satan is working to destroy and hurt people. And so it's important that, that we're a church that has grace upon one another, wants to see the best for one another, is not inspecting one another, but is also ready, willing, and able to be one to come alongside and, and help restore them in the faith. So that's why he says in verse 2 to bear one another's burdens. That, that word bear, it's going to come up. It's important we get this down because it's, it could be confusing later. That means uh, sort of uh, to be shot or wounded. So imagine you're in the military, and let's say you have your vest on, so you just get hurt and don't get killed. So you get shot, and you're wounded, you're hurt, and, and he's saying that's where to come alongside people like that, someone who's hurting, someone who's wounded, and, and look to see how we can help them. And it says to bear their burden. To, you know, when you're hurt, you need someone to cry with, someone to hold your hand, someone to just encourage you, and someone just, you know, to do those kind of things. That's what you need when you're hurt. You don't need to, someone to clobber you more when you're already hurt. And that's why he's being very careful the way he's describing this. So he says, bear one another's burdens. I, I love that, that phrase about how we should be as the body of Christ. That we're, we're there when someone's down or hurting, that we're right there to, to bear that burden. We'll put that person on our shoulders, so to speak, like if you're in the military, and we'll, we'll help carry that person or help get them to the finish line. He says when we do that, we so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Again, the, the attitude in helping people is coming from a place where we don't think we got it all figured out. We don't think we're special. We don't think we're above. And I'll tell you what, I always think with what David went through as a man after God's own heart, I don't ever want to say I could never do that and I would never do that and I'm better than that or more moral or... Be careful with that. Understand we need to depend on the Lord every day, every second, and lean on Him and walk in the Spirit. So if you think you're something, when you're nothing, you're deceiving yourself. Better to think you're nothing. And God is everything. Verse 4, But let each one examine his own work. And then you will have rejoicing in himself, or he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. So our, our main emphasis, and he's talking, you know, in regards to restoring and helping wounded brothers and sisters um, that are hurt spiritually, he's saying, spend most of your time examining your own life. That that in and of itself is a full-time job. And that's the problem with legalism and legalists is that they've already think, they think they've arrived 
And so they have a lot of time to look at everybody else's life. And Paul is saying, hey, it's a full-time job just walking out your own life, and you don't need to be involved in everybody else's life. And that's why he says in, in verse 5, for each one shall bear his own bur- or his own load. So that sounds like a contradiction to verse 2, to bear other people's loads. But it's interesting that word's different. So where the, the word in verse was at verse 2, bear one another's burden, means uh, someone who has been wounded, to help someone who's wounded bear their burden. This word, it, it load, it means it's like a backpack. He's saying carry your own backpack. Don't go around trying to get other people to, to carry your backpack. He's saying be a responsible Christian for your own life. He's, he's saying spend your time, be diligent in your own walk. Pay attention to your own walk. Ask God to examine your heart to see if there's any unclean and un, uh, or wicked thing within you. Have you ever asked the Lord? That's a hard thing to ask Him. Lord, if I'm something in my heart I don't know about and it's an unclean thing, show me. And He's saying, so that's, that's the responsibility that we have to nurture our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We, we nurture that. Personally, we're responsible for that. But then it's interesting at the same time, then we're to be there, there for those, be there for those who are wounded and need help. Verse 6, and we are going to finish tonight, and Paul was laughing at me on Sunday, <laughs> thinking, so I hope he repents <laughs> if, if we finish. Verse 6, I shouldn't get cocky, I might not finish. So verse 6, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. So that's a little awkward one for me to teach. Um, but basically it's saying that to, to the one that's teaching you the word, that there's an obligation to make sure that they're taken care of financially. It's a little awkward. But I can say that because you guys do that. The Bible places such a heavy emphasis on the ability of those within the church that have been called and gifted as pastor teachers to be able to have time to, to pray and teach the word and study to show themselves approved so that they're not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. And you guys allow me to do that. And that is so important, especially in our day and age. There's so many temptations to do other things. And even now, I got an email this week. And the email, I, I emailed them back saying they need to repent because they're trying to get me to hire them, this company, to do the research for my sermon illustrations and the history and the background and all these things. I'm, I was really upset. You can ask tomorrow. Was I upset? But see, do you remember in the book of Acts, 
where the church started to grow and the need started to grow. And those who were, the disciples who were teaching the word, they were being asked to stop teaching the word so they can go help feed the widows that were Greek because they weren't getting fed. The Jewish widows were getting fed, but the Greek widows were getting fed. And the answer was that we can't leave praying and teaching, but raise up for yourselves what was deacons to help serve. And so I say all that because you guys already do that. And so I feel, I read that, and I was super blessed to, to, to be at a church where I can spend my time praying and studying and preparing to teach the Word of God. Because I, I think that's, well, I don't think, it's very important. So he says to do that. And then he says in verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So a farming analogy. The seed that is put in the ground, that's sowing, will bring about over time whatever kind of seed that was. Right? Yes? So if, if, if you... I mean, it seems obvious, right? But why would we think, which we often do, that I can sow worldly things into my mind and my heart and yet expect another thing to come out? This is a general principle that holds true. That you cannot sow things, plant things in your flesh. Some of the things maybe that we mentioned earlier. And maybe your form of entertainment. And then just to expect there to be spiritual fruit in your life. So he's giving this general principle and he's saying God is not mocked. Why is he saying that? Because it's sometimes, we, like a farmer who puts a seed in the ground, they don't see something as soon as they put it in the ground. It, it disappears, Right? So eventually it'll come up. So there's a time lapse, and it's possible that someone thinks, well, God's okay with this because nothing's happening. I thought if I did this, then all this bad stuff would happen, but I'm doing it, and it's not really happening that much. And nobody really knows about it, and it's kind of hidden, and that's mocking God. But not only is that mocking God, your sin will find you out. And God has all, all different ways because He loves us to chasten us and to bring us back to Him. And He'll even do that if we don't repent over a period of time. He'll do that publicly. Or He'll, he'll do that where our sin finds us out. It's exposed. So the, the, we have to, to nip that sin in the bud immediately. Because if we don't, one, we're mocking God. And two, it's going to blossom. It's going to become something. Unrepentant sin 
develops and becomes something and you don't want to find out what it's going to become. This is what God is saying. If you sow to the flesh, this is a promise. Maybe not one we want to get at Hobby Lobby and put on our wall. But maybe you do. If you sow to the flesh, you, you will reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap to everlasting life. And so if we are sowing to the flesh, the answer is to repent and God will restore, confess our sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive us. And so we can't allow the continual sowing into, of sin into our life and think nothing's going to happen. That's mocking God. But the good part about it is that same principle holds true in spiritual things, like tonight. So right now, you are sowing seeds into your heart, into your mind, into your life. You may not even realize it because the seed goes down but you have to trust it. The seed's going in, and as that that seed is in there, there's going to be a harvest. There's going to be fruit that comes from that. That's a promise too. And so he says, in regards to this, and let me just say, this one verse has probably been the number one verse that has kept me going in ministry. Let us not grow weary while doing good. That tells us that you will grow weary in doing good. And here's the promise. This is what keeps me going. For in due season, or in other words, there will be a certain time, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. What this is saying is, no matter what, keep going in the things of the Lord. You may not see it, you may not understand it, but the promise is here and the seeds are going down. And I just think over the last 20 years, how many seeds have been planted in the soil in this area. And it's coming up. There's, there's a lot more. It's, it's got to come up. And I believe that because God promised that. He said, hey, you shall reap. And that goes for all of us. So keep sowing. Keep planting. Live on that promise, you shall reap. You shall reap. You shall reap. That's a promise from God, and He cannot lie. Therefore, in verse 10, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. So there's a a, a priority in the Bible that we're to take particular note and make special effort to do good to one another. 
And there's many reasons for that, but one is that's how the church is built up by us doing good to one another. But two, that's how the world sees how good God is. By this, they'll know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. But this takes that love and puts it in a practical action like we're seeing before in the fruit of the Spirit and goodness. Verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Remember Paul had an eye problem. He usually had someone write for him, but it seems like he wrote this letter himself and he had to do with really big letters. That means that this is so personal and important to him that even though he struggled writing, he, he took, took the time and effort to do it himself. Verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. These were the false teachers who were coming and saying, that's great that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and that you're a new believer in Christ and that your sins are washed away, but you have to be Jewish now. This is the whole reason that Paul was writing the letter. And because of that, those false teachers are saying, you need to add something to the gospel. You need to be a Jew. You need to go through these rituals. You need to be circumcised and all these things. And Paul, in his final conclusion, is then finally debunking and writing them off. Verse 13, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law. So those want, people that want to put those burdens on you, they don't even do it themselves, which is typical of legalism. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You're a notch on the wall for them. This is what we talked about this last week. This is what the cults do. This is what false religions do is you are a number to them. So if they can get you to do what they want you to do, then you're a number, and then they get looked at as better in their religion. That's all you are to them. Verse 14, But God forbid that I should boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom... The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see how Paul saw himself in his relationship to the world? The cross changed him to the extent where the world was dead to him except for him serving God and living out his calling in this world. That's what the world meant to him. It just meant this is the field that I'm working in to do God's will and bring about God's plan. And that's why Paul would say in the the book of Acts that he didn't count his life dear to himself so he may run his race with joy. His life in this world would be summed up in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That was his whole deal. 
That's how he saw this world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. All of these things that we do to try to be more holy or religious, they don't mean anything. They don't mean anything. They're all superficial. They're all external. And they don't add anything to my salvation or my righteousness. Looks like I have two minutes, Paul. And as many walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that's my resume. The abuse on my body that I've taken because of Jesus Christ who is in me, that's my resume. Verse 18, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And that's not the Holy Spirit. That's our spirit inside of us. Amen. All right. Well, man, that was such a good book. I I hate to leave it, but we'll be on to... The book of Ephesians, uh, Lord willing, next week. And so let's pray and thank the Lord. So Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for these people, Lord. These people are precious in your sight. They are your children. You love them. You died for them. In you, they have their victory. They are more than conquerors. Thank you, Lord, that they would take their time to come and put you as a priority tonight to learn of you, to hear of you, and to worship with the body of Christ together, Lord. So I pray a a special blessing upon them, that your grace may be upon them, and that what we have learned in your word be written on their hearts and their minds. We pray this in Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great night and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.